Hello and welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. Devin joins me today to discuss all kinds of stuff. We've got remotes, we've got controllers, we've got GoPro wireless mics, what? But first, Devin, instead of asking you what you've been up to, I thought we'd do a hey, what do you like and dislike about the previous show notes, because I only get to see you every other show, and I've got these show notes open from 65 here, and we were talking off air about some of this, so quick, give me the rundown of what you think about everything on this list. Well, uh, sure. Quick rundown. And uh, name you know it first. The... So let's stay, start with the aviator travel crane tripod. Yeah, yeah with the tripod. Um, you know, it's it, it. first off, I don't know how good the head is. Uh, they didn't talk at all about the head, but for that price, I know that, you know, sometimes you'll get carbon fiber sticks for that price. But uh, them including the head, I part of me was like, well, how good is the head? Uh, because I generally do like bigger heads because sometimes I'm running bigger cameras and like you guys talked about on the show, they show a red on there, but how well does it really support a red and stuff like that? Um, it's one of those where, yeah, it's really short and really stout. And the fact that the head can collapse inside of it does help to like make it small. But to me, because it's a ball head in general, it's just so wide. It's very, you know, I'm not going to get into innuendos here, but it is. It's 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 very hard to manage. And so I could see myself strapping it to my camera bag, and it's not really going to be taller than my camera bag, which is nice, but it's going to stick out really far away from my camera bag, and I'm still going to hit people when I turn around with it. So I see the portability, the whole thing of, like, fitting it on, lo- uh, on airplanes and stuff like that. I guess that works because, to me, that height looks like the exact size of an overhead bin. Like, if you put it, you know, um, I don't know, perpendicular to the door, whatever. Okay, so let's boil this down to, do you hate it? Do you love it? <laughs> uh, I'm not in love with it. Uh, not in love with it. There, there's some cool ideas, but I'm not in love with it. Uh, the the tilt thing? Yeah, let's talk me, about the electronic tilt shift. Yeah, I it, it's cool, but it's such an isolated thing. It's one of those, I'd love to play with it. And I feel like after, a, if I owned one, after a week, I would never touch it again. Uh, to me, tilt shift just isn't that interesting. It's cool for a few one-offs, but it just isn't something that I'm, I'm going to get that excited for. It's a cool thing to experiment with, but, you know. Uh, now, memory card test, 64 gig, go. <laughs> this excited me. This one, I'm definitely going to buy one of these uh, without question because, uh, you know, the, the Sandus and like you said with the GoPro and uh, you upgrading your firmware and everything like that, I did the firmware upgrade because I bought Sandus cards because they've been fantastic except for their micro lineup. So this definitely provides another option, and it's so cost-effective, and everything's come down. And real quick, wanted to add, too, that even the extreme for your Blackmagic Pocket Cinema camera, those SDs have come down, because there's only one SD ever that's worked for raw recording or just generally stability, and that's been the 64-gig Extreme Pro, 95 megabytes a second or whatever. Yeah. And they have, like, a 128 of those now, which I haven't seen benchmarks on. They but have a costs... 256 of it as well. It's like... Yeah, and they, they've got they... 256, but the 128 right now is on Amazon for, like, 70 bucks. Nice. And this is, like, this is... If it has the same speed as a 64 gig, which I imagine it was because it's more space, uh, it's it's definitely, like, totally worth the price. I remember spending, like, 100 bucks for the 64 gig, I think, a year ago. So, huge pr- drop in price for SD cards. Now's the time to buy... Uh, which, you know, once again, we'll talk about uh, the GH4 prices later on in our show notes. The sunspot issue, uh, there's nothing I can say about that, then it's kind of disappointing, but you know what? I feel like we live in a world now where everything gets pre-released before it's completely done. Now that everything has software updates, 
you know, people are just going to keep releasing stuff that doesn't work right out of the box. And that's kind of the world we live in, and we have to accept it. All right. And the rest of that stuff is all just filler stuff that we threw in about <laughs> camcorders and so on. Awesome, Devin. Great rundown. Now, before we mm-hmm. start in the regular news here, guys, I wanted to talk about one other thing. Um, Rode is not a sponsor of this site, but you can tell from Devin and I's microphones that we do use a lot of Rode We love Rode. And I do like Rode, and I like Rode even more now. Uh, this is my Rode VideoMic Pro, and as you can see, uh, the bottom is busted off of this guy. So Ooh. I sent them in a quick email, my serial number for my microphone, and without even questioning me or asking for anything other than my address, they sent me replacement parts for this guy right out of the shoes. So no real effort on my part, no problem whatsoever, <laughs> and bam, now I have the replacement piece. Did so, you see a similar kind of service with your DR60? Uh, no, I did not. <laughs> Yeah, so or DR70, whichever model it is. Yeah, Tascam was not nearly as friendly about simply going out and <laughs> replacing my stuff. In fact, uh, still no response from customer service on that. But Rode, Ouch. their ten-year warranty on their microphones, it's legitimate, folks. Uh, just Rode is sending out free stuff, so that's really they're nice. all about. They're all about happy customers. They know that in order to get into this industry, they need to create relationships, not just great products, and that's what they're about. All right, I think on that note, we've talked enough for before yes. the news. It might be time for the news. Time for the news. All right, first up here, I wanted to talk about this rather old school use of a Canon XC10. Now, if you guys are familiar with the XC10, we've talked about it before. It's a 4K shooting one inch sensor Canon camera that is made to look sort of like a DSLR. Interestingly, since it's a fixed lens, people were wondering what this would be like with a 35mm adapter. Now, I'm kind of dusting the cobwebs off here and dating myself, (laughs) but man, I remember using these when I had an HV20 and a Canon GL1. These were great for adapting your old Nikon lenses Mm -hmm. with like a flip-over mirror and so on to a camera body. Now, what do you think about this, Devin? I watched the video. You watched the video. It's obviously soft at 4K, but is it a cool concept? (laughs) Dude, it's soft at 1080, man. To me, it's it's absolutely garbage. Um, I couldn't see any practical reason of using it. The guy in the video mentions that as well, that he wouldn't ever recommend it. I mean, it'd be cool to experiment and try, and you could get a few different kind of looks. I mean, that's one of those things, is that there's some people who are just interested in old lenses for looks um, or feel of the lens, or other of these are artisan things or whatever. But really, I think that... Um, It doesn't serve too much of a practical purpose. I know that it's a fixed lens, but I don't imagine that after you attach this and your other 35 millimeter lenses and all this extra work, you're going to end up with something better than if you just spent that extra money getting a camera that properly fits this. We've talked about they're making a small form factor camcorder that lacks a lot of features. And part of the point of it is that it's small. That's the only thing you have going for this Canon. Uh, is that it's small. It's not revolutionary. They aren't changing a whole lot. They're just making a smaller camcorder, and for that, they're going to sacrifice some features like XLR and all kinds of stuff. And so you attaching all this, you're just forgoing that. And so it's like, well, you might as well just get a full-size camcorder or, you know, they, they do make camcorders with interchangeable lenses. We talked about JVC's got <laughs> some that do micro four-thirds and stuff like that. So yeah. uh, all in all, like, it's there's this is this would be a fun experience. This is something I would do because I love piece and random crap together. But uh, I, I would never think of this as a solution for like creating better or more cinematic videos out of this camera because uh, you don't seem to be in love with this camera. Yeah, I'm all. not in love with the XC10 at all. I, I think it's a weird camera. There are so many other cameras in that price range that offer up uh, the same abilities and uh, basically either 
a almost one inch sensor or fairly close to. The interesting thing here is actually when I was looking at this rig, um, the old days you didn't actually use a mirror system, and you can see in here that it's got a the flip over mirror. Uh, the trick mm -hmm. was in the old days because the image is reflected upside down is to actually mount your camera upside down. So I'm wondering oh, really? if they yeah you used to mount your camera upside down. No, I didn't. So that would I didn't go straight into your camera, and that way you would you would get your footage right side up when your camera uh, was exported out to you know from DV tape out to your editor. I I don't. I don't know if it was a lettuce adapter or what, but actually uh, there wasn't an option for that. When I put the camera on rails and put it on my, I can't remember the brand now, but my old 35 adapter, it was, I just, I had a secondary monitor that was battery powered, which in those days was still like super expensive, even though it's really primitive. And I would use that and I'd invert that monitor because even the monitor wouldn't have an option to invert the video. Oh, and so I'd invert, invert that monitor in order to shoot. Yeah. And then just invert in post. Um, Back then, it was a DVX-100B, so it was all DV tapes anyway, so it wasn't too much of a job to invert in post. Uh, but yeah, that's that's how I went about it. So I'm sure this is probably the end-all solution back when 35 millimeters were a thing, but nowadays, you get a camera that small, I feel like, get an A7S or something like that and put a whatever 35-millimeter lens you want on it, and now you're good to go because it's still going to be manual. It's all going to be manual lenses, old FD or Nikon lenses. So you gain nothing by doing this other than losing uh, brightness and losing sharpness. So there's really no reason to do this. but For those of you who have never seen one of these before, go watch the video. There's links in the show notes. Uh, this was cutting technology in the early 2000s and late 1990s for getting yeah. that film it, look in your camera, it, unless you could afford like it an was XL1. Before, it was before uh, the 5D Mark II revolution. Uh, this was way for... The, the reason for this was because it was a way of getting 35mm looking filmic kind of look uh, on your camcorders because the cameras that got you that 35 millimeter look, those digital cameras were way out of the price range. We're talking well above two or three grand. So spending a thousand bucks on a 35 millimeter adapter and things like that it was still super cost effective for you to get that look out of your um, DVX 100B or your uh, PD 150 from Sony or any of those kind of old camcorders uh, that were all running standard F mini DV. I was running then. HD on this man. I was I was <laughs> yeah. using an HV 20 that shot, like, uh, you could output full 1080p out of the HDMI port and capture it with, like, a black magic mm -hmm. card. And so I, I used to <laughs> test those, and then you had to do interlace issues because the footage right. came out, you know, in 60i. Because so it would be 60i, yeah, it wouldn't be 24 or anything like that. Oh, yeah, man. so it's, th that takes you back. See, I never suffered with this during HD. I then switched over to uh, a T2i and then suffered with T2i, uh, you know, not having proper audio inputs and everything else that came from the early days of doing DSLR video. The HV20, that, that was... That HV20. That even was before, I think, the uh, the T2i as an yeah, early release. Uh, I mean, that beat the 5D Mark III out, that, or Mark II out as a, a camera. Man, now you got me dated, but it's really <laughs> right? interesting. All you guys that like are... some old fogies. Yeah, all you guys that are way younger than us, go check those rigs out. It's really interesting. It's kind of cool to see what we used to have to deal with back in the day to try and get what you can get out of a DSLR now. And so... Those are, and actually, I'm going to transition with that. Mine, I don't know where it's at. It's probably stolen, and you don't want your gear to get stolen, so maybe you should hold on to things and keep an eye on it. Um, this is actually another sad story of gear being stolen here over at petapixel.com, and I've got a link to that in the show notes. This gentleman was going on several vacation trips and traveling all over the world with his GoPro 
and his camera taking pictures and doing uh, videos and so on. And somebody stole his camera bag and with it, eight memory cards full of his entire adventure, which basically represented uh, three or four months worth of work. 150 gigabytes total were taken and there's no way to get that stuff back. Now, I'm not saying that you should do anything particularly special, but this brings me into the thing that Mitch and I were talking about last episode, and I could not, for the life of me, remember it. And I did finally look it up. It's called, uh, what do you, Kit... San, uh, Kit Century? Kit Century, Century. maybe? Yeah, shouldn't yeah. doesn't Century have a C in it? <laughs> Century. Uh, yeah, but I still think that's Century. I think that's what they're going for. I should just listen to the video. Maybe it's Century, it, but... like uh, the Century that stands over and watches for yeah. protection. Uh, anyway, these are really cool little NFC chips that go into your camera bag. They help track your gear and so on. I haven't paid attention to this project. It did get fully funded. So if anybody mm-hmm. knows anything about this, I would love to hear more. Basically, it's a way to inventory your entire kit and keep track of everything and where it's located at with these simple stick-on tabs. So check that out if you're interested in protecting your gear. Do you have any other uh, yeah. input on not losing your gear to theft? <laughs> not I losing mean, gear? Um, no. No, you know what? It's tough. Part of it, too, is also, as weird as it sounds, not being a tourist. Um, and, and sometimes, too, uh, that means tra- when you travel is a lot of minimalism. Don't carry a lot of bags and stuff like that. Uh, but for the most part, this was a situation that was, I'd have to say, it's one of those, like, one in a hundred thousand. Um, His camera bag like was pretty obvious, obviously a camera bag. A camera though. bag, Yeah. So, I, I mean, that makes it a high-risk target, but it's one of those where he looked away for a second and somebody grabbed it. And that's so – that isn't a likely way for stuff to get stolen compared to, like, I forgot it by this statue while I walked over here and took pictures for half an hour, and then I come back and it's gone. That's usually how most gear thefts happen, but – on the train, anytime you're around like buses and public transportation, that's where these kind of like one-off moments happen. And so it's really unfortunate. I think, you know, more than anything, he's probably really upset over the footage that's lost because uh, he wasn't, he, he kept it all on one card. Kind of goes back to where you're talking about how you used to shoot on small cards so that like they'd be separated. Uh, but having your entire bag and all the cards stolen is terrible, terrible way to go about it. The, and if you're in America... You can write down the serial number, you can report it to Canon or whoever else, and sometimes things happen that way, but it's uh, very unlikely. Now, one thing I travel with, and it's kind of not a camera bag-looking camera bag, is this satchel right here. This is made by Tamarack. It's the rally bag, and it basically it has enough room for you know a camera body, a couple lenses, and some batteries, and so on. And no one knows that you're carrying a camera bag around with you. Plus, since mm-hmm. it's a messenger bag-style Uh, It's comfortable to carry with you, keep around your shoulder. And if you are in a public place, it's something that you don't set down on the ground because it's always on your shoulder. So I would guess that would be the best way to go. Plus, separate your memory cards from your dang camera bag because your camera bag is always going to be a target no matter what. And if at least you have your footage in, I don't know, your backpack, your luggage or something like that, it may at least save some of that from Uh, being stolen. Yeah, and if you don't shoot on CFs um, and you're shooting on SDs, SDs fit in a wallet. Yeah, I don't really care what kind of wallet you have. I've done that so many times where I've been at a shoot, and when I'm done, I'll actually just put SDs in my wallet all day, um, unless like you know, there's there's a reason for me to put in my camera bag instead. Uh, But yeah, you fit them in your wallet. I fit like three or four in my wallet after a day of shooting, 
and it's very unlikely that you'll lose your wallet and your camera bag in the same day. So I actually I use one of these. It's really handy. Um, I've got a nicer one for rugged activities that's waterproof and so on. But it's uh, uh, for those of you listening, this is a micro SD card holder, and it's just a little clamshell pocket type of deal that's mm-hmm. nice and solid and they, metal. And you can slide cheap. it in with your wallet. They're cheap. They're like ten bucks. Uh, also, uh, Gator cases, I believe, as well as uh, Pelican. Pelican make some waterproof, watertight uh, units as well that are like this. That are, are keep really in mind good the for... Pelican ones are crappy. Yeah, uh, by they've Pelican's gotten better. Name. They've they, gotten they a lot have... better. They have, but I've got one of the original models of the Pelican. I haven't had a problem yet, but lots of people have reported about broken hinges and broken this and broken that, which is unfortunate because Pelican carries such a big name when it comes to their big cases, and when they made these small cases, they seem to cheap out on a lot of stuff. But at the same time, I think even the Pelican version of that case is maybe 15 bucks. so uh, it's definitely worth it if you're using more than one SD card. Now, moving on down the line to remote controls, uh, the Sony A7S and A7 series in general hasn't really been great as far as the button position goes. If you're not familiar with the A7S or any of the A7 cameras, it has the world's tiniest record button buried <laughs> on the handle. It is a pain to get to. It sucks. Uh, and the camera in general, as far as starting and stopping recording, is a little bit obnoxious. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. If you've used one, it's very rough when you're trying to autofocus and then switch back over to manual focus. And if you're using Canon adapted lenses, you run into all kinds of trouble there as well. This is a really nice attachment. They sell a wireless version of this as well as uh, mm-hmm. the wired version. And I've got a few different links here. Uh, the wireless version actually still uses an IR blaster, but gives you zoom controls, uh, start-stop recording, as well as focus and lock. Uh, it's it's kind of an interesting deal. $68, very spendy. But the <laughs> wires, or the IR blaster, and I didn't even realize there was an IR uh, offering on that particular camera is only about nine dollars. So I'm interested to test this out. I've got one in the coming yeah. in the mail, so I'm going to play around with it. Uh, well, Devin, do you use any remotes for your cameras? No, not at all. Uh, I've been really? planning on it. I've been planning on it as like I've been messing around with ideas of creating kind of an ENG rig and stuff like that. I've looked at some cheaper ones. You can find them for ten bucks. Uh, I think it's pronounced Lance, but an L A N C cord. Uh, it's the kind of cord that you would normally plug into a camcorder a prosumer camcorder and these controls run anywhere from just the record to a zoom uh and exposure control i think some even had focus um but i know that the black magic pocket camera has a port for it and i think that it's the same kind of i don't know how exactly it works frequencies or whatever uh that it is for the panasonic so i haven't gone around to buying one yet i've considered it though because as you start to build up your rig and you get further away from the screen, it then kind of becomes more of a hassle to click on it. I mean, with a GH3 or GH4, you don't have that problem because you can use the shutter because you're going to be in manual movie mode anyways in most cases. So it's not it's not terribly necessary for me, but I saw somebody apply this on their handheld rig and went, you know, DJ should look at this because he's always complaining about, you know, that little button that Sony puts on their cameras uh, that they still haven't changed even after their new Mark II, so... Yeah, one of the things that's actually great about the IR blaster is that uh, if you're using the Canon one, the RC1, or the, mm-hmm. uh, what's the other, I don't remember, there's the RC1, and that's the good one, and then there's a cheaper one that I can't, like the RC6 or something like that, uh, you can actually fire off 
multiple cameras simultaneously as long as the IR signal can hit the sensor. And I've seen mm-hmm. people actually build these really elaborate fiber optics uh, cables <laughs> on wire and aim it at two different cameras or three different cameras to do multi-shoot type stuff. Uh, really interesting way to go. Nope. Nope. No? I would never trust that. Um, just Well, just because I feel like you don't gain any convenience because if I would do something like that and then I'd walk around to each camera to make sure that it's recording. You, you know what I'm saying? So you can't I feel just look like at the lights on the front of the camera. I mean, you hear them all beep, and you oh, see well, like the little. Sure, little flash. for camcorders, for DSLRs, though, I'm not uh, used to seeing any lights or signification from the front of the body to tell me that's recording. Yeah, now you got me thinking. I'm pretty sure <laughs> there's a right? flash or a light or a beep of acknowledgement nope. from at well, least. Well, I guess my... you could turn on the beeps, but if you're firing off multiples, then you gotta like try to listen to where three beeps are coming from at once. Uh, it's just one of those where I go, I'm going to walk around anyways to check them all. I don't see a point in firing off multiples anyways. Um, so to each their own though. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> that's kind of an interesting topic. And in fact, um, one of the things that if you're a blogger, that's handy for that is aiming the camera at yourself and then hitting the record button on those remote controls. Uh, there oh, are yeah. a lot of LANC, uh, enabled DSLRs out there. So no. It is kind of interesting that that style of remote works with the A7S. Now, while we're talking about professional control systems, let's take a look at this. And this is actually something Devin's excited about, and I will never be excited about, <laughs> the Sony PXW X40. Devin, tell me about this camera. Man. Yeah, X400. It's a, it's a two-third inch sensor. I know a lot of the listeners here uh, aren't necessarily maybe big news guys or documentary filmmakers, but... Remember, too, these big cameras are where you get a lot of your features from and where a lot of technologies get developed that end up in the smaller cameras. Um, this is a mid-grade camcorder for sixteen grand, which seems ridiculous considering it doesn't do like 5D shallow depth of field or something like that for your filmmakers out there. But uh, what's interesting is it does come across a lot of great features uh, at a very much lower price point than has ever really been before. Understand, too, these cameras are expensive because... They're built to last 10 years. I've seen cameras like this that have gone on for 20 years, uh, hustling along without a problem. Not a lot of other cameras have that kind of build quality. But uh, one of the big features of this guy is that it can actually record an SDI signal, which a lot of cameras can't do. I know it seems silly because all your old, like, old school analog camcorders, you could use like a mini VCR. Uh, but these guys just never have SDI in. They never really built the hardware in unless you bought a top-of-the-line one, which costs well over thirty grand, and you got a super expensive add-on card and a bunch of other stuff, then you could record it. So allowing these mid-levels to record SDI is important news because in a lot of situations, they won't allow 20 news people, uh, news camera guys into one room to get you know a, a person talking or something like that. So they, they do what's called a pool where they bring all their uh, technology equipment together all the networks say, okay, I'll cover audio, I'll cover this, I'll cover that. And then they all share the feed with each other. Well, this kind of is interesting because when you get that feed, you can actually record a copy of that feed locally on site onto your own camera. It's not like necessary every single time you go out, but it's one of those that can be a really handy feature the one day that you really could use something. As well, too, um, the way a lot of people go live these days is they use something called a TVU or a... Uh, uh, I can't remember it. Um, It's something that starts with dough, but they're basically 4G modems is all they are. They put like eight 4G modems together. They spread the video signal across all of them. Yeah, Yeah. and all the backpacks, they're... um, 
They're of like course, a, satellite. a poor man's link up, right? Yeah, it's it's uh, satellite guys hate them because it feels like it's putting them out of a job. But to be honest, the quality still isn't there yet to beat satellite. But uh, this camera actually includes built into it Wi-Fi, Ethernet, and a USB port for a 4G card. Uh, I mean, that's only a single 4G card, but you can still send proxy files. This allows you to do live recording. This allows you to upload a stream to a station or something like that if you have nothing but the camera. They're, you know, packing more and more stuff into one camera so that you don't need a truck, you don't need a laptop to do an uplink or anything like that, and potentially you wouldn't need um, one of those backpacks either. You could just do this with the camera by itself. So I know a lot of the guys that, you know, but what is interesting too is that it's got an NFC, which I find really funny that they've built a smartphone app to go with a camera like this because that's something that you'd think you'd only see in the consumer end. But being able to like launch a phone app that's connected with the camera and be able to control certain parts of the camera remotely, whether you put it on a jib or it's in a hard to reach area or you're like across the site or something like that and you need to adjust exposure or something like that. There's a lot of really cool things you can do remotely with this camera. And I think potentially down the line, we've already started to see it with Panasonic. Uh, but I think eventually you'll start to see the Sony DSLRs and stuff like that start to incorporate a lot of these remote Wi-Fi features that that can, frankly, like come in super handy the few times you need it. It's not something that like, oh, every single time I go out, I'm going to use my camera as a viewfinder. But there's those few times where you go, man, I'm so happy I can do this. One time just for me before DJ goes, because I know he wants to say something. Um, I was shooting a restaurant, and this was photos, this wasn't video, but I was shooting photos of a restaurant, and I had my widest lens, but still, I had to tuck the camera into, like, the tiniest corner of the restaurant and not be anywhere near it for the picture, and I could have done a time delay and everything else, but I went, screw it, I launched the Wi-Fi, I popped up my phone, and in two seconds, I set the exposure remotely and said click, and then did, like, a five-second exposure, whatever I was doing for whatever effect I had, it was one of those where it was just, like, well, this just this made it a lot easier. I didn't have to guess. I knew exactly what I was getting, and I knew when it was done, and I knew when it was started. And you know, so it's it's one of those really really handy features to have the few times you need it. And so it's one of those that isn't a reason to buy a camera, but it's definitely one of those huge benefits when you own one. Now, with a feature like that, being able to run this from your phone, are they trying to eliminate cameramen in general and just send a single <laughs> reporter slash news gatherer out under uh, one monogram? Right? Um, no, uh, per, per se, the, the news industry in general is really, uh, shrinking. I, it's shrinking. There's so many, I mean, still when a big thing happens, when you're talking about president Obama's on a podium, you've got a bunch of these cameras facing him because they are the best looking cameras. Um, even though this one is HD two only, which kind of surprised people what 16 grand, it doesn't even do 4k. Uh, yeah. but still that's, that's the way ENG is like ENG isn't there yet. They don't care about 4k, um, yet, but uh, no, these kind of cameras are too big and they're honestly too complicated. And you're right. What they're doing is they're sending out reporters by themselves, correspondents with handy cams. They're sending them out with, uh, uh, you know, uh, not usually JVC, but they'll send them out with some of the Canon camcorders. Uh, they'll send them out with the Sony camcorders, the EX3s. I've EX1s seen local news popular. people with even as low as those, uh, the X, is it the XR25, XA25? I think it's the yeah. XA25, which is just like a plain Jane 1080p camera with, a, you know, a, an SDI output. They link that up to something, and then they can basically run it from like a handy control yeah. remote slash thing. And it's, it's <laughs> and they can even flip the monitor around so they can kind of see themselves to yeah, make no, sure no, everything's no. inside. And that's and that's how they're doing it. But a lot of them, when they're on site, it's they're running the cameras in full auto. 
they aren't camera yeah. people. They don't really know what they're doing. They may know enough to like make sure white balance is set or something like that and focus is set, but they let the camera do all the automatic work for them because uh, they're not a camera person. And that's where the news industry is going. And I feel like part of it is because cameras are becoming smarter and you don't necessarily need cameramen in order to get decent quality. And so, and the fact that the consumer base isn't asking for perfect quality, they're not picking news stations based on how good they look. They're picking them based off of whatever the headline is. Uh, so it becomes less and less important. These cameras, though, have been pretty much re- completely remote controllable for a long time. It's just usually there would be a giant cable, like giant, like, you know, five times the size of an Ethernet cable. You'd run from the camera over to like a rack mounted control system where you can control iris, you could black level white balance. You can control all that kind of stuff remotely. They build these things to be completely remotely operated. Uh, it's just now they go, you know what? No one's really running cables or doing that anymore. We need to set up a Wi-Fi system. And now they're doing it with NFC, you know, which probably goes over to a Wi-Fi connection or something like that. So it's one of those where it's kind of exciting to see where this stuff is going. Uh, but, you know, you wouldn't be wrong to say that these big ENG cameras are kind of like a dying breed. They're starting to go away because... Uh, news isn't exactly, you know, crying for it. It's not like they really need better quality than what they've already got uh, because that doesn't affect their viewership, like I said earlier. And, you know, they're, they, they used to send out a producer, uh, a correspondent, a cameraman, and an audio guy, and a lighting guy. And lighting now they guy? basically... Yeah, yeah, they used to send out a lighting guy who would like either the generator w- would run off the satellite truck or they would bring a generator and they would set up HMIs way back in the day. Now what do they send out? A correspondent and a camera guy. Yeah. And the camera guy has to do the audio, the lighting and everything by himself and the correspondent has to produce the segment and direct himself and everything else. So and and then like you said, a lot of local news, they just cut the camera guy. They have the correspondent just shoot their own stuff and send it back to the station. So uh, it's it's definitely shrinking. There's not a whole lot of jobs in that industry anymore. Well, and even with cameras like this, you know, a station invests fifteen or twenty thousand dollars in a camera. They're mm-hmm. going to be using this camera for, for a ten years yeah. or better. And I mean, I was laughing the other day because my wife and I were walking down for dinner, and their local news was out, and we saw their camera, and I was like, oh man. The 1990s called. They want their camera back. You know, it's like <laughs> yeah. this monstrous, horribly old, dated thing still running DV tapes. And you're like, what the heck yep. is going on here? And it's because the station invested so much money at that point, and then they're just running with that investment for this entire time. So it's it's really weird to me since I'm not from the news gathering side right. of things to to see <laughs> how they've like they spend all this money on other things, but then they waste money or they don't spend money on stuff that. The- think would matter (laughs) the news industry is slow to change in more than one way (laughs) that's for sure (laughs) all right moving on to something we wanted to hit really quick Devin, you got some new lenses sounds like you picked up the 35 to 100 uh f2.8 from panasonic as well as the 12 to 35 millimeter f2.8 i have had and gotten rid of one of these lenses kept the other one what do you think of them man Mm -hmm. um of course i haven't hit the 4g problem that you've been talking about as a a loss of quality uh, but from somebody who went around shooting primes for so long, it's been such a pleasure to have zoom and image stabilization, and it's totally worth it, especially on the longer end too. I'm really impressed with how well that uh, 35 to 100 stabilizes. It, it just it really it really is um, better than I thought it would be. So I'm a big fan of it. Now I bought mine used. I lucked out. 
uh, right now, because I wanted to post these on like Amazon, you can buy brand new uh, 780 for the telephoto and 650 for the wide to medium. And that, considering last year, it was probably a little north of a thousand. Um, it it get it doesn't get better than that. Like if you if you've ever been interested in these lenses, I doubt they're going to drop much more than they already have. I'm imagining Panasonic's probably coming out with something very soon or very new. Um, DJ's going to pull up the Olympus probably right now and show that the Olympus is probably still going for north of 800. So because that's the main competitor for your 12 to 35 f 2.8 is the oh. Olympus. No, it's Which, falling too, man. Uh, looks like the price for the Olympus uh, twelve to forty millimeter f two eight. Uh, I'm seeing used on Amazon for six seventy five. So, and that's uh, fulfillment by Amazon. So, that's fairly. That, so that's got an Amazon guarantee on it. Well, yeah, I, I have to pay taxes up here because I live in an Amazon <laughs> state now. So it's less efficient for Still. me. But yeah, six seventy five. I mean, that's come down quite a bit. I. I think it was eight ninety nine or better when I first started looking. Uh, I don't know. So I've used both Good. of those lenses. I like the uh, one hundred or the thirty five millimeter or thirty five to one hundred millimeter f two eight. It's a great uh, you know sort of replacement for the seventy to two hundred on a full frame body. Uh, obviously, f two eight is not the same on a micro four thirds camera, so keep that in mind. But the IS on the twelve to thirty five from Panasonic was just. It was washy. It washed out my image. Mm-hmm. Devin's holding it up right now. Yeah, uh, I am. But I, the the positive side for Devin, and actually this is one of the things I, I loved about that lens, it's way lighter. It's, oh, yeah. It's, it's way totally lighter. Plastic. And it's mine, totally plastic. Mine are that nasty purple because mine are the used older version. I think if you buy brand new now, they're black. Uh, what we're advertising, they're black. Uh, but still, it's a dark enough purple, and I don't really care about what color my lenses are. Um, but... Uh, and like I said, I just lucked out because I did what you do, which I had a if this, then that on uh, eBay to notify me when one of these guys would drop uh, well below their price. And some guy did a buy it now for a mint condition version of this. It's $200 cheaper than the new price. So nice. I, I lucked out because I jumped on that, I think, five minutes after he posted it. Um, but yeah, for me, image stabilization, even if it softens the image a slight bit, it's still worthwhile to me because I do enough uh, documentary shooting and kind of ENG style run around, get this shot, get this shot. And uh, I mean, that's part of the reason why I like rigs. Then, you know, part of it too is that there's some places where I can't use a rig. And so this just gives me options. I can use it or I cannot use it. Uh, Yeah. It's not, even though it's parafocal, uh, you know, you can see that it changes kind of exposure as you go through the zoom range. You're not going to get a smooth zoom out of it. But that's also something that I'm probably not going to bother to hook up a motor to actually film a zoom on this because zooming by hand is near impossible with DSLRs on video smoothly. Uh, but all those things concerned, well, DJ can do it because DJ's amazing. He has this, hey, no, these amazing hands. <laughs> I'm not amazing. I just do it like 10 times. And one of the shots will definitely turn out just by <laughs> accident, pure luck. Um, uh, yeah, and you know what? Uh, the important thing to that too, if you are do, trying to do a zoom with a DSLR, on especially on cheaper lenses like a Canon kit lens. I remember my old Canon three point five, five point six, uh, twelve to thirty five, whatever they or twelve to fifty, whatever they have. Um, on the old kit lens on the T two I, if you have Adobe and you do the warp stabilization, that can really smooth out your zooms. 
uh, yeah. because it'll actually kind of do the warp it needs to. You'll play with it just like you do all the time. It's not like you can just turn it on and it fixes it, but you'll be impressed how much it'll smooth out a zoom. It's not just for smoothing out motion. It can also smooth out zooms. So uh, that's something to consider too. But for me, uh, I know DJ's got really good hands and he no, can okay, keep his so camera steady. Another I have problems with that. Trick. And this is something I've done many times. Um, I love that Hitchcock zoom. And if you're not familiar with that, that's where you either pull towards your subject or away from your subject while changing your zoom range in order to keep them at the same distance and your view from the camera. And we actually get like three people together. Not This is not DJ's crazy stable hands. This is me running the zoom ring. Uh, someone running the slider, another person like panning and tilting to try and keep the camera in motion. And we do this probably seven or eight times before we get it right. And it, even at the end, like if you watch really close, you'll see a little bit of a hiccup in the move. But it's such a cool move that mm-hmm. you completely forget about the little bump to the side. And it's the same thing if you watch interview shots on occasion, you'll see someone zoom in. And when they zoom in, it'll be a little rough. But you're not really focused on the zoom, and a lot of people don't even notice it. You're focused on the subject, and he's telling a compelling story. So if you zoom in a little bit and it's a little bit iffy, I mean, a lot of times that'll just slide. No one will even notice it. And Mitch and I were actually talking about this last episode. I mean, I've made huge, glaring continuity errors and stuff I've shot I mean there's a scene where the guy loses like 60 pounds just walking around the corner and uh, no one noticed so that was was my favorite story about about going back for reshoots and the guy lost a ton of weight and (laughs) one reshoot and he yeah but you're right if when it comes to filmmaking if you're talking filmmaking um uh, I mean I guess and even doing documentary featurettes and stuff like that if people are connected to the story and they're compelled um then their attention is going to be on what's important. And if you're editing around what's important, you're always presenting what's important, then that's where their focus is going to be. Like, people think it's absolutely crazy that the original release of The Lord of the Rings had some, like, Volkswagen bug driving across the landscape in the distance. But you, at that point, at that juncture, everyone was so compelled between the relationship between Frodo and Sam uh, that that they that their focus was on the bottom of the frame. They didn't care about the top of the frame. It was yep. a big, beautiful field. They're focused on the bottom of the frame because that's where their heart was. That's where their emotions were, and that's what they were interested in. That's that's the part they wanted to see. And their brain just conveniently ignores the rest. I mean, it's like anything else, though. Once you point it out, it's like, oh, that's such a glaring thing. Oh my gosh, and everything else. But I'm like, you'd be surprised, man. You get so involved in it, and your brain just starts to let go of a lot of problems. Now, back to the 12 to 35 millimeter f2.8. Have you noticed the slight darkening when you're zooming on it? Have you tried yeah. that at all? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, okay. it's it, it's like dark, bright, dark, bright. You know, it, it goes, it's got like two or three yeah, parts where it jumps steps. a little bit. Yeah. And so, like I said, I don't imagine myself ever zooming on it because I don't imagine I'll ever go through the effort of motorizing it. Uh, and just because there's very few times where a zoom is even needed in today's market. I know that sounds weird, but zooming in during a shot or zooming out is kind of, I don't know how to describe this, more of like a 90s thing kind of. It's more of a, it's a very newsy thing. It's a very TV looking thing. And with people wanting to create it's cinematic so fun, images, though, to do that know, like cheesy, like what? And then you just zoom straight into their face. Well, and it's if just you're like... doing a smash zoom, if we're talking MTV style, then you can do that with any DSLR lens. Yeah, it doesn't need true. to be smooth. <laughs> you could do that anywhere. 
But um, and I'm sure, yeah, and I'm sure with a lens that long, you're 200 to 400. You probably love zooming in and out on video because that thing looks brilliant when you zoom it. Yeah, this guy. Um, and actually, one of the tricks I also use. He's holding a Canon L, super expensive. Yeah, is that is an the, f2.8 or something? Yeah, this is the f2.8 IS uh, 70 to 200. It, it's a very spendy piece of glass. One of the cool things about this lens is you zoom in uh, by pulling down. So if you think about it, uh, Devin always gives me crap because I'm like, I handhold everything and I don't worry about blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but there's actually I'm just tricks jealous. to this. So one of the things that you, if you think about with this lens, like the easiest motion to make is actually zooming in because you're pulling down. When you're trying to go smoothly up, you're like you're, you're moving your shoulder and you're kind of gauging right. it. But if you just need to zoom in, and I, if you ever watch any of my stuff, you'll realize when I do zoom, I only zoom in. I never zoom out. And the reason is is because when I zoom in, I can easily control my motion by slightly mm-hmm. turning my wrist. But when I'm zooming out, I have to be very cautious and like move my whole arm and everything. So it, it's much more noticeable to do that. And so that's the like that's the secret <laughs> sauce that I use. I don't know if that works for everybody. Now the other yep. thing, and while we're still on these lenses, yeah, the manual focus on it. How do you feel about the fly by wire on that? Is that acceptable? Yeah, I'm not thrilled by it. I'm not thrilled by it. But to be honest, that's part of the reason why I wanted this lens. Is that just about every other lens I have is a prime. It is manual. Uh, most of them are Nikon uh, old manual lenses with manual irises and manual focuses. Um, so I've been doing manual for a long time, and part of my reason for wanting a lens like this is for that wanting to be able to do autofocus in the few instances where it would be really crucial, or for doing photography work. Because that's part of the problem, too, is like without it being a DSLR, I really don't like the EVF. The EVF on the GH3 is horrid anyways, but even using the screen, trying to pull focus for photography is way different than pulling focus for video. Because photography is such a higher resolution, you really need to nail it. Otherwise, you're going to be able to tell when you take it into post and you blow it up in your big monitor and see your photo. So uh, for me, it's – well, and that – and like soft video is forgivable. A, a photo that's out of focus is never forgivable. Like just in just about every situation unless it's stylistic. I mean so, in, if you crank it down to like 610 by 400, then no one will ever <laughs> notice that it was right, soft. Right, right. So – uh, so that's part of the reason is that I wasn't thrilled by the fly-by-wire. Yeah, the Olympus has hard stops, and that would be nice and for repeatable focus and everything else. But I was kind of looking for a lens that would give me more of a documentary option. It would turn it a bit more into a camcorder. So I'm not thrilled by it. I would have preferred if there was hard stops. Uh, but uh, I was willing to forego that for the fact that I could get image stabilization um, as well as being cheaper. It's easier on my budget than the Olympus. Um, so that's, I mean, that's why I deal with it. I'm not thrilled by it, but I'll deal with it. Now, while we're nerding out about lenses here, um, <laughs> I did want to mention one other plug for Olympus and I don't own any Olympus bodies guys. I, that's what's funny about lens. this. <laughs> uh, I, I know everybody that has Olympus cameras, they love Olympus cameras. They're professional, blah, blah, blah. Nice styling. I agree. I like the look of Olympus cameras, but I shoot on a GH4, that's that. Now, this is an Olympus lens, though, and even their smallest lens, this is the 17mm f1.8, even the smallest lenses in their collection, look at this, click, mm-hmm. and end stops. Nice, yep. full twisting. I mean, that's not a lot of swing, obviously. I'm not going to put a, no. um, a focus puller on there, but uh, I can still get just enough out of this to pull focus on a shot, 
and not have much of an issue. And Olympus is really good about including this on all of their levels of lenses. And you take that in comparison to this 25 millimeter F14 that I have right here. And I mean, this focus ring is mm -hmm. just uh, endless spinning, uh, weak feeling, loose, wiggly. Well, and it's it's and Ugh. the problem is is that it's not going to be repeatable. It's um it's one of those where when you shoot enough in manual focus, which I th everyone's supposed to do unless you're DJ, because um, <laughs> he's I just talked break about all it before, the rules. I don't do anything the, the right way. Um, when you do the more and more you do of it, the more you'll appreciate something that has a mechanical focus. Um, whether it's your prime, like I've got prime Rokinon, Nikon lenses and stuff like that. And what's great about it is that there's no slop in it. So when somebody steps forward, they step back, you kind of in the scene, you start to figure out exactly how far you need to move back and forth. And it's always at the same mark and it's always on point. And that's what's great about it. Um, like uh, something I struggled with is my SLR Magic 35mm T1.8. It's not the expensive one. It's the cheap one that's maybe like 300 or something like that because I think they've got a 35mm a that's like T0.95 as well. But yeah. anyways, the cheaper one has slop. Even though it's a mechanical focus and has hard stops, there's probably a good like two millimeters of slop. So then when I'm in a scene trying to get focus as they go back and forth, I go to where I think the focus should be for a person that far away and it's off and I got to go further and then they get further away and then I go back and it's not enough. And so when you start to like deal with like you have mechanical focuses and you go back to something that's either wire or it's sloppy because it's just poorly made, uh, you'll start to have an appreciation for those hard stops. Like I said, I'm not thrilled about it. I'm going to accept the fact that my Panasonics have a wire focus because the other features are a bit more important to me than that. So just because I have so many manual focus lenses, I need something I can actually take photos with. That's kind of was one of the reasons along with having autofocus for a cheap, cheap price. And then, like I said, they are super cheap. One last thing, because you're talking about how you never focus in the reverse direction because, uh, I never you, zoom in the reverse. You never direction. zoom in the reverse direction, uh, because of that problem. Some people, I, cause I've had that problem before. Remember you can take your follow focus and attach it to your zoom ring too. It works both ways. So you can use a follow focus way of turning it to actually zoom in and out. Uh, I've done it on one or two shoots. It's been immensely helpful when I needed to do a lot of quick zooming. Uh, so, but to each their own. There's actually one other reason to do it the way I do it. And uh, <laughs> it's something that's less apparent if you don't know much about very expensive cinema lenses. Uh, these DSLR lenses are not parafocal. Uh, yeah. they, they seem like they might be, you know, at, at higher f-stops, uh, you could appear to be. But the nice thing about even a lens that's not parafocal is if you're zooming from wide to close-up, it will stay in focus because of the nature of the lens. It's when you actually go from close-up to wide that the parafocal issue becomes a problem and you start to see the drift in focus. So it's another sort of cheat um, <laughs> They don't tell you about this, but if you try to do no. that continuously, well, your focus points are going to drift, and it's going to look bad going wide, but it does. Ne it never fails the opposite direction. Yeah, and if, I don't know the math behind that. I just know well, it's a let thing. Me, yeah, I, I can rant about that for 30 seconds before we move on to the next topic. That um, well, That is an old teaching for a lot of people that they carried over into DSLR that's actually the wrong way to go about it. Uh, and you can test what? this for yourself for your own gear. Well, the whole zoom in, set focus, then zoom out, that was something we did with the DVX100B, other mini DV camcorders, uh, basically every camcorder you've ever owned. 
uh, that's how they taught people to focus. And in news, with those ENG cameras, like the one I talked about earlier and everything else, that's exactly how you focus those lenses because they are parafocal. That's one of the reasons why those lenses cost 10 grand uh, yeah. for something that covers like one fifth of what a Canon DSLR sensor has. And that's because they're built that way. Um, so DSLRs, that's why it's important that a DSLR has an easy way to crop in. Uh, or maybe even your your monitor that you're using, your EVF or something has a way to punch in because uh, zooming all the way in, setting focus and zooming out on a lot of DSLR lenses is not going to give you the results you want. So that's why punching is so incredibly important uh, if you're using a DSLR for video shooting. Yeah, so the, the trick I'm talking about, you don't focus close up, you actually focus wide. And then you zoom in. And because of the nature of the way the glass right. moves, your object will still be in focus when you get to the close point. Uh, <laughs> and that's just a, a weird trick. Right, but um, I'm just, I'm saying I've seen so many guys who shoot video who've zoomed in their DSLR, set their focus, and then zoom oh, back out. Oh, okay. Yeah, and that's I, where I'm I was like, confused. I'm like, what? Yeah, no, 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 no. Because you, yeah, because the way that you do it, that works because of the way that the lens elements and move. No but... one ever told me about that trick. I just discovered it one day. Oh. I was like, oh, look. Because I wanted that cheesy zoom in. I mean, I shoot horror right. films on occasion and that's a great thing to have is like someone stares directly into the camera and says something ominous and you zoom into their face and right. i was trying to figure out how that would work with a then, dslr without exactly motorized zoom and then i figured out well wait a minute if i focus wide and then zoom in they still stay in focus i don't know why this is it doesn't work the other way it you know and there's <laughs> right you know, there's huge forums devoted to this uh, technique but, so but yeah so guys that that technique is a real technique but it only works on parafocal lenses and chances are if you're on a dslr it's not a parafocal lenses some of the canon l series will actually do that kind of nicely because they're pretty expensive but uh, unless you're, but you can't be sure unless you test it and you definitely, you know, can't be sure unless it's one of those ridiculously expensive Canon, Canon cinema zooms. Oh, those, those are, those are nice, parafocal. Yeah. Those will hit every time, <laughs> but that's part of the reason why they cost so much. So, all right. Now we've talked about expensive stuff. We've talked about cheap stuff. Let's go to mid price stuff here. This is really interesting actually. Uh, and this is probably what I should have led the show up with. I'm kind of excited about this. Really? Bluetooth. I didn't think you would be. Yeah, okay, so what do you want to do with the GoPro? And actually, guys who are not watching the video, for the audio listeners, this is a backpack for your GoPro that allows you Bluetooth access to a wireless microphone that plugs into the USB port, taking advantage of the USB audio adapter system for the Hero. And I've got a couple different flavors here. Uh, this first one is from, looks like... Uh, it's called the RMA1M1. Yeah, Renew. Uh, this other one is Cena GP1. Uh, both of these are interesting. And the reason I'm excited about this is because what's the biggest downfall of a GoPro video? It's always audio. Always audio. Audio is always awful. And, you know, you think people are going to do extreme sports stuff, but, you know, a lot of times they're just doing talking to the camera, bicycling about, uh, skateboarding around, and, and talking while they're doing so. This is perfect. At $100, you plug it in, you get Wi-Fi or wireless audio via Bluetooth to mm -hmm. what appears to be an okay-looking uh, uh, microphone setup. Not amazing. But the other unit I linked to, the Cena GP1, that actually allows you to pair it with any Bluetooth device. So if you have a Bluetooth headset that provides good audio, if you have a Bluetooth microphone, if you have one of those Sony Bluetooth microphones, I mean, that gives you... A yeah, fairly um, wide range of no, wireless it, it mic does. options. To but to go back, um, the Removu M1. Yeah, I'm not gonna even try to pronounce that. Right, 
Uh, that one will actually work with third-party Bluetooth microphones. You can actually sync that with any microphone. That's why on paper, I don't know because I haven't tested both of these side-by-side, side, but on paper, um, that one's the better deal because you're getting both the mic and the backpack for $100, and the backpack fits inside of a normal GoPro case because they're using a very slim USB cable to interconnect the two. Uh, the other one you posted... It's like $100, I think, for the backpack. It's got a very big brick on the side, so you need to use their casing. So I don't know how much their casing is, but you got to use their casing because the GoPro doesn't have a quarter 20 because that's the way GoPro rolls. I think this one comes with its own uh, frame, blank frame. It gives right you a here. frame. If you want it waterproof, that's the part you have to buy extra. Yeah, that's true. Um, and then their microphone, I think, is still like $60 if you want their microphone, which looks like a decent microphone, but it's just, oh, 150 Looks like a decent microphone, but it is one of those that like, okay, now you're spending close to $200 for an audio solution for a GoPro. So, that's true. Um, it, it, and it, but you know what? It could totally be worth it. I haven't really heard that many sound tests from these things. I haven't seen a lot of people that have gotten them yet or compared them side by side, uh, but I would love to. But the um, for right now, uh, the first one we t- – I can't pronounce that name, whatever, RMA1 and the M1. Uh, How about like Removi? Removi. They seem like a really good price. This is the same company that uh, made the little wireless wristbands that uh, DJ wasn't a huge fan of because he said they're a bit flaky. They also yes. make a version of the wireless wristband that's like $20 cheaper that lets you use your own GoPro backpack. It's yeah. probably just as flaky, but... Um, um, I've used this this wireless uh, wrist adapter before, and uh, they're a pain in the butt to pair. They uh, skip out on you on a regular basis, and the screen quality is roughly the same or worse than the backpack that's included with the Hero. So... Not right. a great attachment, um, but this audio thing, man. But this audio thing makes sense because that's like filling a gap that uh, GoPro, and it's not GoPro's fault. They they just there's no way to work around it. Has any camera had fantastic uh, onboard audio uh, or onboard mic audio? And the only ones that have are like camcorders that come with shotgun mics, you know, already well, attached to them. GoPro's done a good job of addressing this um, from the three black edition to the current version. The four? Uh, the four black edition. And I have a bag somewhere with them all shoved in there. I, actually, <laughs> I think a light's sitting on it back there. But the thing is, is the audio on the three black was, it was rough. Like, there was some static noises. The noise floor creeped up around the minus 38-ish dB range. Uh, a lot of people were getting weird interference when they had Bluetooth devices or Wi-Fi in the area. The Hero 4 Black Edition, if you use the USB to audio adapter, you can get darn good audio quality out of this with just, like, a basic uh, Rode VideoMic Pro plugged into it directly. Or they even sell these cute little stereo mics with uh, windscreens that you can attach to the front of it. Now this, if you can find a Bluetooth adapter that allows a wired like lav mic to be plugged in, you would really have the ultimate remote blog uh, camera yeah. type of thing. Because you, now you can run it from your phone. You can get good audio out of it, decent video quality, you get 4K footage, and it's super tiny, so you can take the whole thing with you. Uh, I don't like that it's AGC controlled. That's a little bit of an issue, but it, GoPro seems to do a pretty good job, especially in the Hero 4 Black Edition, of keeping the noise floor from really creeping up like you see on uh, the early iterations of AGC on Canon cameras. So with here's, this... Here's what I see. Here's what I see, because I listened to the initial audio tests, and honestly, uh, while most people are focusing on voices... 
it still sounds fantastic. I'm guessing it's an omnidirectional pickup pattern because that would make sense. The microphone does come with a waterproof casing as well. Where I could see myself really using this thing is for environmental audio. There's so many times where you're putting a camera in a place, whether it's in a car or, you know, it's on top of somebody skiing or something like that. You're putting the GoPro somewhere. And half the time you go, you know what, it would have been nice to use some of this GoPro audio to maybe be like a a sound bed underneath like a voiceover or something like that with an interview or something. But you never go to it because it's always tinny and it's always crappy. And I mean, I yeah, you're right. They've come a long way and they've really worked on like making it as good as it can. I'm just commenting on the fact that using the tiny microphones they built into the thing, even though they do wind reduction and everything else. Uh, it's always going to be lackluster, and it's never going to really meet the standards that people uh, like us want to have for you know audio that you use. You wouldn't use that audio for an interview. You know, just stick the GoPro a few feet away from their face and use that audio. Yeah, that'd be um, awful. So that's what I mean by the audio is just it's always going to be crappy because there's only so much you can do True. with such a small diaphragm and a small package. Uh, but uh, this guy, I imagine just attaching him, whether maybe even on top of the GoPro, like housing as well, just to get better environmental audio. That's all waterproof. And I can throw that into an extreme condition or something like that, and then come back and actually use some of that audio. Um, you know, maybe not specifically like an interview or something, but you're right. Vloggers and people like that, this would be a perfect utility for, uh, but for me, I see it using it for, uh, you know, getting like some of that natural audio to mix in with the rest of your sound bed as you kind of like, you know, build a picture. If, if it's about a guy skateboarding, imagine like getting better audio of your GoPros of him, like hitting the half pipe or something like that. It's just yeah. going to make your whole. So I, I see myself using it in more ways than one. Like, th- obviously, the first thing is like, I'm vlogging here, but I also see it using as just like, here's a great mic that is waterproof for your GoPro where most GoPro mic options that are pretty good, because you can use Rode and a few other ones, they tend to be really big, and they definitely aren't waterproof. And most of the time, they make it so that your GoPro is no longer waterproof, which kind of prevents you from putting in certain situations, which is kind of the appeal of GoPro, is putting it in crazy situations. Yeah, now, uh, this does come with a waterproof case for the microphone as well. So, And you can see that here. Let me see if I can present my screen. Uh, It doesn't show it very well, but you see right there, it's in an enclosure. So I'm wondering Mm -hmm. what the audio sounds like inside of the enclosure as well. I I imagine you'll lose a lot of the high end, but you're still getting a bigger diaphragm. And it's probably the outside water housing that's like probably very light. You probably aren't, you definitely aren't probably going to dive with it, but I'm sure that it makes it somewhat waterproof. You can put it in a pool and it'll probably still get you better stuff than the creaky plasticky sound you get out of GoPros when you put them underwater. Yeah, this is this is definitely interesting. I would love to test this out. Uh, good catch on the uh, the Bluetooth adapter. I didn't realize that you could pair this with anything besides the unit that came with it. Uh, that's why I was looking for. Well, other and ones the pricing that... makes it a good deal. A hundred bucks, yeah. you get both the backpack and that, and it fits in normal housing, so you don't need to buy extra housings. So, but at the same time, like I said, I can't compare them side by side yet. So the Sienna may just like have absolutely better microphone and better audio quality. I imagine it's got a better microphone just judging by the design of the microphone. It's, I think it's probably a better microphone, but I'm not going to say anything until I can really hear them side by side. 
All right, moving on. We've got just a couple of things left, and I think we've filled up an entire show here. Devin, we have already. Yeah, we did it again. Material. Um, there's two things I wanted to mention. One is the GH4 pricing. I talked about this last show. It's dropped another 15 bucks. The GH4 uh, from Gray Market now is is coming out at about yeah. 9.65. So I don't know if there's a new GH5 coming around the corner. <laughs> I've also seen a good price fall off on uh, micro four-thirds lenses over the last couple of months, which is really interesting. The 15 millimeter F17 has dropped in price substantially, and, and it's got me looking at that uh, Panasonic Prime that was otherwise <laughs> not on my list. The, the last thing, though, that I wanted to throw in here before we get out of here, Devin, is actually the Canon 35 millimeter F14 Mark II. Now, yeah, I own the original, uh, it's in my bag down here somewhere, but uh, I've been trying to talk myself out of talking myself into buying <laughs> the Mark II. I'm looking at this uh, LensRental.com review, and if you guys aren't familiar with Lens Rental, uh, they're not a sponsor of the site or anything like that, but they do an amazing job of tearing down some of their lenses, cameras, and so on, and their blog has some great stuff if you just want to spend some time with a person that actually has to do repairs on these items. So mm-hmm. go check that out if you're interested. Uh, they just have a quick little blurb up on the 35mm F1.4 Mark II. Uh, it is a spectacular-looking lens. Um, upside is they've added weather sealing. It's actually made out of uh, somewhat a metal body as opposed to plastic like the original. Mm-hmm. And it's got upgrades in many of the ways that I wanted the original 35mm <laughs> F1.4 to be upgraded. But 1700 bucks is it worth it to me? Probably not. I don't know. Probably Devin, what not, do you think? No, no. no. I, well, because once again, um, you know, the side by sides, I'm not really seeing uh, enough performance to even maybe even justify selling your Mark One for a Mark Two. Um, and like the weatherproofing and everything else is nice, but you got to ask yourself how many times you're going to be in a situation where that's really going to be a requirement of yours. I, I know for a lot of photographers, weatherproofing is huge. Uh, if they're out in nature and they're out doing kind of that photography and event photography, I feel like though, because of video, because we've got microphones attached and all this other stuff, we're either like wrapping all of our gear to be waterproof, um, or we're like setting up a tent or something like that, uh, or, you know, just shooting around the weather, the pavilion or something like that. So for, as a video maker, uh, waterproof lenses aren't just aren't something that I put high on my priority list of when I'm buying a lens, what I'm looking out for. Uh, but I know for photographers, that's probably a huge deal because they go out and shoot in the mud all the time. I can tell you that I did spring for the 24mm F1.4 Mark II yeah. and sell, and I sold my Mark One. But the reason for that was actually the 24 Mark II is much better autofocus control of the lens mm-hmm. in general than the original 24mm f1.4. Um, I don't see that as a thing for the 35mm f1.4 because it was a great lens in the original yeah. form. Uh, this one is sort of, it feels like the upgrade between the 16 to 35 and the 16 to 35 Mark II. Like the Mark II, it's sexy, but is it so sexy as to just ditch? my otherwise stable relationship that I have with my 16 to 35 millimeter. I mean, she's been with me through thick and thin, stuck together when times were tough, and now I'm just going to leave her for a newer model. That's kind of sad, guys. <laughs> it's kind of sad. Yeah. Um, well, and what would the, what do you estimate the upgrade price would be on that? Like uh, a it's about price 800 bucks, probably, because I'm looking at the uh, use price of my 35 millimeter F1.4, 
and uh, it looks to be hitting it right about a thousand dollars. So yeah, you know that's... what? Uh, right now is a great price to a great time to buy a Mark One. I, I tell you that because it's a great performing lens, and um, you know for a thousand bucks, if you're into Canon L series glass, which I'm particularly not because I don't have a whole lot of electronics that work with it, but. Uh yeah, every time these Mark II come out, um, pretty oh, decent man. price drop. I'm looking at Amazon right now, and the used price of the original 35 millimeter is dropped down to 749 for used yeah, but good condition. That. Holy cow, that's a a big kick in the pants. So, <laughs> so hey, if you're interested in Canon glass, uh, the Mark One will probably service you just fine, and it's way cheap. Man. For okay. for L series glass to be like seven fifty, I'm not sure there's a lot of lenses that are cheaper than that with the red band. Well, the one thirty five and don't ask me why I have so many Canon lenses on my desk right now. <laughs> this is a Canon one thirty five F two and this is one of the cheapest L series lenses on the market. You can pick this up for around six hundred six fifty. Uh, also the twenty four to one oh five with the red band F four if you're really into an F four lens. Uh you right. can get that sometimes used or new well, if, for if about six hundred bucks. If you've got a uh like a five D Mark III body that can do some pretty high ISO while still, you know, maintaining itself. You don't get the shallow depth of field necessarily, but um you, you do get a decent, you know, zoom f- uh for pretty cheap. So like I see the market for it. I can't imagine I'd ever buy it because I'd always look at that F4 and just resent it, but <laughs> to each it's, their own. I actually, I went from the uh, Sigma 30 millimeter F1.4, which I used on uh, crop sensor bodies, APS-C sensors, and I switched over to the 35 millimeter F1.4. And I think that years ago I did a comparison video and you get done watching it and you're like, which one was better again? And it's <laughs> yeah. because like the $400 lens is just that good that when you're looking at the 35, you only really choose the 35 because you know it's expensive. And yeah. it's full frame, of course. So, you know, if you're shooting on a full frame body, you're going to have to go that route. But if you're shooting on a crop sensor body and you have the Sigma 30 millimeter F14, and I, I think they have the 30 F14 Art now too, which mm-hmm. is the newer version of that. And it's a fairly sexy little uh, APS C sensor lens. So, you know, don't spend the money just because you need that 50 look on your crop sensor body. If you can get it for cheaper uh, and you're not planning on going to a full frame camera, right. then it's probably a good investment. No, no, I've been, I've been, not that I am I would pull the trigger, but that Sigma uh, Zoom, the 1.8. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. For, what's it? I mean, it's not that long of a zoom. It's 18 to 35, it's, but still... Yeah. Still, it's 1.8. I've been looking at that, you know, in maybe a Canon mount with the Metabones being like a real sweet package to put on the front of a, um, oh, a yeah. GH4. Uh, but, you know, still haven't, because that, that'd be like about $1,000 to get a Metabones plus the $800 uh, Sigma. So, I mean, if and, but the thing is, is that it's cheap and it's 1.8 because it's APS-C sized. So it's not going to work on your 5Ds and your full frames. But... Still, I've seen just amazing things about it and amazing performance for a lens that costs really not a whole lot compared to everything else out on the market. The thing, though, and I know we're kind of off on a tangent now, but right. uh, <laughs> on the GH4, going to F1.8 is not nearly as attractive 
as it is on a full frame or even APS-C sensor body. I mean, I've got the 60 right here, and, and the reason I have this all this Canon glass out is I just finished a shoot uh, yesterday with the uh, Canon 60. I just took it out because that was the camera I wanted to use. But anyway, the point is, is 51.2 on this is gorgeous. Like, I can knock out the entire background. I could put just someone's mm-hmm. nose in focus. <laughs> with the uh, GH4, even with the um, Voigtlander... Uh, what, 25mm f0.95, like, mm-hmm. you're getting the field of view of about, you know, I want to say f1.8 on a, a full-frame body, maybe f2. Right. So it's it's still sexy, but it's not nearly as bokehlicious as you get out sure, of Sure, because you're obsessed with shallow depth of field. You, you, you're all about compressing the scene down into a big blur of color. I want to force not- you <laughs> into looking at what I want you to look at. You can only see that, and everything else is just mush. Uh, he, he paints pictures with silhouettes. That's what he does. Um, no, for me, the you know I, I just think that I'm more worried about exposure because the GH4 isn't a low-light camera. Yeah. That I think about things like a Sigma 1.8 plus, a Metabones would get you pretty good exposure. It's not going to get you 5D shallow depth of field, but I'm more concerned about getting enough light. Though uh, uh, there's a few guys who've posted that they you know don't like Metabones. They think that um, it's got a lot of flare or something like that inside of it. I mean, uh, everyone yeah, you get some weird light effects occasionally. Yeah. You get sort of like a a bounced soft image. Like I've I've been shooting something and. I will move the camera just so, and it'll catch the light from the wrong angle, and mm-hmm. the whole uh, scene will go like soft. Con- or the contrast will completely go away. Like you're, it'll, you know, it'll wash out. out. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I can't put my finger on when or where it's going to happen. So you really have to kind of pan through what you're shooting ahead of time to make sure that you sure. know. And but I've been I, using it more. I actually took it as my backup because the Metabones focus system works, works. on the GH4 now. It works. I, so I threw it in my ca- in a camera bag with the 6D. I took it out on my last shoot and used it as the second body to my 6D for most of my main stuff. And, it, man, yeah. that is nice. And then you want to talk about sexy. It's still not as sexy, but putting the 24 and the 35mm mm-hmm. uh, F1.4 on the GH4 with the Metabones adapter, it's pretty good. Yeah, I, yeah, you're liking uh, it. See, yes. for me, uh, for me um, you know, as much as I like the primes and everything else, um, I have so many primes. I've been trying to look over at the the zooms, and so hence the Panasonics. But in in researching that, uh, I just I think to myself, and I'm like, man, it, even if you got something that didn't have a whole lot of zoom, like the 18 to 35 Sigma, uh, you get the meta bones, and it, you know it gets a little wider and it gets a little faster. And then when you need more of a telephoto, you just get something that passes the electronics through, uh, like that other Canon adapter you have. And now you get, you know, on the GH4, that makes it a what? Yeah, uh, the kip, uh, it's a times two crop factor. So yeah, so it's, it's I'm trying 18, to think what 18 times two is, which is what's throwing me off. A 360 that would be what, like to... 36? To, yeah, 36. Yeah, that's what I meant when I said 360. 36, 36 to 70, to, roughly? Yeah, so you get you you get kind of a wider you, you get I feel like more use out of that lens by having both a meta bones and a non uh, speed booster. So you know it's just it's one of those kind of things where you get a few different options, and I think of more ways to use a single lens uh, as I try to save money while acquiring every lens in the world, so I can somehow you know get close to DJ on the mountain of lenses. <laughs> oh man, you don't want to be in my boat. I have um, I'm actually doing a calling. Uh, this week, if you're in the Portland area and you're on Craigslist, 
Um, I'm getting rid of my 24 to 105 F. Everything lens. must go. I don't know why that's even <laughs> in my collection. I have the uh, Tamron 24 to 70. Don't need the 24 to 105. I just, for some reason I got it in a kit because it was on sale, and then I just kept it. I have the original a wide angle Canon L series lens, the 17 to 35 millimeter F 2.8. I've had that one for somewhere in the range of like 10 years and wow. it's a great lens, but I have the 16 to 35. I don't even know why I hold on to the 17 to 35 anymore. It's, it's some of those sorts of choices in my collection. Uh, same thing. I have the 51.4 and the 51.2. Why do I need a 51.2 and a 51.4? I don't know. I've been throwing the 51.2 in my kit with my, uh, Panasonic gear and same with the 8518 and the 8512 like i don't really need both of them i end up using the 8518 way more than the one two but i don't know i buy too many lenses don't yeah, do that absolutely right. absolutely and now he's, okay he can't get rid of them yeah that's a on that note i think it's time to wrap this show up absolutely Devin, uh where can people find you man people can find me on twitter at DevoCut uh to hear me talk to myself <laughs> <laughs> And on that note, folks, you can find this podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, and anywhere else uh, podcasts are distributed. Be sure to like, subscribe, and tell Devin how great of a guest host he is every week, because I love Devin being around. Also, this was episode 66. We are moving forward. Wow. If you guys have comments, complaints, concerns, or questions, feel free to put them in the YouTube notes and yeah tell us what you like about the that. show what you don't like about the show because we haven't really done question and answer very much uh, occasionally we get one or two that we respond to but i've been kind of uh lazy in general about that so <laughs> guys if you have questions that you'd like to hear us talk about on the show just let us know on that note we'll see you next time on another exciting episode of dsr film noob podcast <laughs>